friends. You are my kind of people. You love kids. You want to come and talk about children's ministry for three hours on a Saturday. Bless you. Bless you. I have often said I believe in two powers when working with children. The Holy Spirit and candy. And, but now I realize I'm speaking to you folks today. And so I wanted to incentivize you with the awards. Well, these are the love language of grown-ups. Amen? So we pray that the Holy Spirit blesses, but uh, this is kind of a crutch here. So I'm going to be asking some questions about children's ministry throughout the day. And I've got an assortment of five and ten dollar gift cards to hand out. You might say, Bob, is that a quiet seat prize? No way. We don't give quiet seat prizes because we're aiming for something better than just quiet kids. Amen. I like to give out excellence awards. I tell the kids I could go out and get a rock and put it on that chair up front. The rock's going to be quieter than you are. And so I tell boys and girls, man, I want to see Berean Christians. You're sitting up straight and tall, sucking your gut shoulders back, chins high, looking right this way, paying close attention, thinking, answering questions. And uh, I'm not saying that to you guys, of course. I'm just saying that's how I would introduce it if I was doing kids ministry. How many of you have been in kids ministry more than five years? Can I see your hands? All right. Praise the Lord. How many of you have done it for more than 10 years? Can I see your hands? Awesome. Anyone over 20 years? Let's have a hand for those folks. Bless bless you people. And so let me begin by just disappointing you. I'm probably not going to say anything that is new. Right? Like that, you, it's not going to dawn on you, oh, I've never heard that before, because the best truth is old truth. Amen? Amen? And one of the values of it is just collectively getting together, submitting our desires to the Lord in the context of the local church ministry, and just uniting our hearts and thoughts around what God's heart and thoughts are about children's ministry and aligning. And then also, as we align, I think it inspires, I think it motivates. So, let me just go ahead and introduce uh, myself and my family a little bit. That's my wife, Sarah. We were married in 2007, and I met her at Northland Camp and Conference Center. And uh, she was there. She wasn't a camper. Um, She was actually the uh, secretary to the program director at that time. And many of you know my buddy Will Gawkin. Has you ever heard Will Gawkin preach? And um, I was a little bit older. And I was about 33 years old, a single man in conservative Christendom. And so many people took it upon themselves to be the Holy Spirit in my life and to <laughs> guide me. <laughs> but that summer in 2006, I was sitting with my buddy Will and my future wife walked by and I just had that divine spark, and I said, Will, who's that? And if you know Will, he's like part, he's like part prophet, right? And he's kind of mystical, and he gets this look in his eyes, and he goes, oh, that might work. And so, since I was a little bit older than her, Will and I began to strategize, all right? And so... I said, Will, why don't you invite her over to your trailer where we play that great 
uh, Baptist game of Rook. And uh, so he went up to her and he said, hey, Sarah, would you come over my trailer? And uh, a lot of us are getting together. And my wife, who's very spiritual and very smart, said, well, who's going to be there? Because she just saw it coming a mile away. And Will's like, oh, you know, my wife, Christy and Joel and Megan and Bob Roberts. So (laughs) my future bride-to-be went back to her dorm, called her mom and said, Mom, they're trying to match me up with that big, tall, loud-mouthed junior camp speaker. (laughs) And thank God for a perceptive and godly mother-in-law because my mother-in-law told her, Sarah, you're going to go to that trailer and you're going to have a good time. God moves in a mysterious way. And so it was two months after that that we were engaged. And then, uh, yeah, when you know, you know. Amen. And then seven months after that, uh, we were married. Uh, We were married at uh, Tri-City Baptist Church. And that is my pastor back there and my mentor, Dr. Carl Herbster. And so I've got to behave today, folks, because I know he's taking mental notes. I mean, I, I I have... I have hundreds of hours of tutelage under this man in, in the seminary, in the classroom, in the local church setting. So y'all pray for me today because there's another level of insecurity. So <laughs> my wife and I were led to go to Hong Kong, China in 2010. And uh, while we were there, we uh, taught conversational English at a public school of about 1,200 students. And God just answered some interesting prayers. We just prayed that God would kind of shake us loose of some of the comfort and the American dream that we had kind of uh, planted our feet in. So we went over to Hong Kong there. And while we were in Hong Kong, God led us to adopt a daughter. And we went through one of the orphanages there in Hong Kong, China. Went through all that process. And then finally we got the call after about six months of intense interviews and filling out all kinds of paperwork, they said, Mr. and Mrs. Roberts, we have a match for you. And I said, great, can we come get her? They said, no, you got to wait a week. And I said, well, can you send photos of her? And they said, no, got to wait. I said, well, can you tell us about her? And they said, sure, she's really small, has dark hair and dark eyes. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> So a week later, we went to the orphanage, and I was going to be a dad that day. I'm becoming a father that day, meeting my 13-month-old daughter. Have no idea who she was. I'm back on the phone with my buddy, Will Gawkin. Seems like whenever there was major milestones in my life, I'm talking with Will. And I'm on FaceTime with him. And I said, Will, please pray for me, because I already see kids I hope are not mine. And... uh, (laughs) That's true. I just want you to know I'm human, okay? Yeah. I want to resonate. I'm, 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 uh, I'm not perfect. And so they brought her down. We were in this little room. They brought this little bundle. Oh, man, it was like a perfect Hallmark movie moment. The theme music playing in the background. They sat her down between me and my wife. And she had this little bonnet, big black eyes. And just perfect, perfect moment. And I'm like, I'm, I'm doing the dad thing. I'm good at this, you know. And I pull out this little stuffed lamb. And I said, here, buddy, this is the first thing daddy wants you to have. And she looked at that. She looked at me. She looked at that. She threw it and then yelled at me. And it was such a blood-curdling scream. They had to remove her from my presence. 
So my first minute as a father was a dismal failure. So while she's calming down, they take us on a tour of the orphanage. And we go to the, the room where the toddlers sleep, uh, kids her age. And the orphanage worker is saying, Mr. and Mrs. Roberts, here's where the children your daughter's age sleep at night. You'll notice many cribs. And she's just pointing out all the cribs lined up against the wall. But then she looks at us very sternly and she says, But your daughter, no crib. Your daughter, she go up out. Your daughter, over there. And she points to the corner. And I'm not kidding. There's a makeshift wooden crate in the corner for my daughter. So it's like normal kid, normal kid, normal kid. That's your child over there. And I remember that is the first moment I felt genuine fatherly pride. I was like, amen. Ain't no crib going to hold my kid back. So she is now 11 years old, and she is a pistol, but she also, um, she also loves the ministry. She loves hanging out with Dad. She loves uh, hearing Dad speak. She loves helping Dad speak sometimes, and uh, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that I think my daughter loves Jesus. Amen. And uh, so what I'd like to do right now, please, is... Turn to Psalm 78. As you're turning there, I'll let you know that my current ministry, besides speaking at summer camps, and I've spoken five times this summer at different camps. I was out uh, in Hawaii at Camp Capono. I was at Southland, Louisiana. I've been at the wilds here of uh, North Carolina. And by the way, uh, did any of your kids come home and tell you about the Passover meal that we had? So, folks, we did a legit Seder meal in cooperation with the Wilds kitchen staff for 300 juniors. And that was awesome because the Passover points to the risen lamb, Jesus Christ. And so I hope that your kids enjoyed that. For the last about four and a half years, I have been splitting my time between Knoxville, Tennessee, where my parents live, and uh, we're kind of taking care of them during that uh, last season of life. And then God opened up a unique door here in Boiling Springs. The Wilds asked me to go and promote a, the camp at a Slavic church. So a church filled with Russians, Ukrainians, Moldovans, all the other uh, former Soviet states, and I went there thinking that was going to be a one-and-done day. And I met the pastor. I'd never spoken at a Slavic church, but of course, growing up in the 80s, you have some preconceived notions about Russians. Are there any Gen Xs in here that grew up in the 80s like me? Yeah, so okay. So I'm a little bit nervous, and I sit down with a pastor before I go to preach there that Sunday, and I said, Pastor, uh, you know, what kind of style should it, my preaching be? I said, because sometimes I like to tell stories. I like to illustrate truth using stories. He said, mm, maybe no story. I said, well, what about like laughter? Mm, maybe no funny. Okay. So he just kicked the only two legs out from under me that I have. So I figured this is going to definitely be a one and done. And then he looks at me very sternly. He says, have you heard of Bob Jones University? 
I said, yeah, a couple times. He said, we are more conservative than Bob Jones. So, okay. So I come into church, and I'm just kind of being be-boppy Bob, happy, just happy to be alive, happy to see other brothers and sisters. I sit down with the deacons. They wanted to meet me before I spoke. I said, hey, I'm Bob Roberts. Tell us when you are saved. Okay. (laughs) And so, folks, for whatever reason, God just knit our hearts together. And I told the brothers recently, I said, brothers, I have never prayed one time in my life, Lord, send me to Russians. But I'll tell you right now, God, God directs his kids, doesn't he? He's a father that gives good gifts. And one of those gifts is just specific leading, specific direction. And I found favor in their sight. And they're the people that I want to be with on Sunday. And in January of this year, the congregation uh, voted me in. And I told the brothers, I said, I really believe I need a 90% vote to stay here. Because if I get voted in, I want to give 10 years of my life, that 50 to 60 corridor of my life to this church. And, and some of the brothers tried to dissuade me. They said, uh, you know our constitution, only 80% necessary. Because they were not confident I was going to get 90%. Because some of the old... It's not uncommon to see me after I preach a congregational message between two large Russian men being corrected. Okay? Older guys. I got 100% of the vote, folks. And I went to my friend Daniel. And I said, Daniel, number one, I want to recount. Number two, how is this possible? And he just turned to me, very common sense, said, oh, brother, they want to break you. (laughs) So... That is, it's, been, it's actually been the ministry joy of my life to be at that church for about four and a half years now. It's called Word of Life, uh, Slavic Baptist Church. We're running now between five and 600 on a Sunday morning, and uh, we're growing, uh, not primarily by uh, evangelism, but primarily through migration at this point. And I often remind the church that We want to grow primarily through evangelism. However, we were just able to baptize 10 new believers uh, in one of the local Greenville lakes who had been through a 12-week foundations of faith, and they had beautiful testimonies and professions of faith. So praise the Lord, His truth is marching on. And praise the Lord that such a huge part of a local church ministry is to direct attention to children. We, we believe that. You know, it's been said that the man that can answer the question what will always have a job, but the man that can answer the question why will always be his boss. So the most important questions in life are the why questions. Why do we focus on the kids? Why do we do what we do with the kids? Why do we teach what we teach with the kids. And so what I'd like to attempt to do today by the grace of God is kind of do uh, an initial high level, higher level children's ministry message on just God's thoughts about children's ministry. Try to think God's thoughts after him. And then the second session is going to be primarily on the DNA of Kids for Truth. And even if you're not in 
the Kids for Truth ministry here, I think that will be uh, highly valuable to you to see how that was formed, why that was formed. So I would like to invite your, if you're in, is anybody ever in Psalm 78 right now? Did I already ask you to do that? Awesome. Okay, so here we are in the middle of the Bible, Psalm 78. And it says here, give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. So basically, this is a holy call to almost like what you would do in children's ministry. Okay, I kind of have my little tactic of when I come into a room and I say, Good morning! And get their attention. Maybe you've heard somebody say, Eyeballs! And the kids go, Click! I had a gym teacher named Pete Katra, and he had the spiritual gift of a piercing whistle. <laughs> Have you ever heard this? But it's basically the call to attention. Like your, your mind is over here and your mind is over here and you're thinking about doing this and you're thinking about what's for lunch and you're thinking about, you know, your bills and you got to sign that paperwork and the psalmist is doing an inspired whistle. Listen up, pay attention, because what I'm about to say is super important. Now, what kind of strategies do you have in your class to get kids to pay attention? Especially some of you that have been doing it for 20, 30 years. Anybody got one? Interact here? You threaten them? I'm going to sit on you. That's the negative, or hey, if you sit up and pay attention, I'll eat this goldfish. <laughs> that's the positive, all right. So that's what's happening here, is there is a divine call to undivided attention. I'm not necessarily doing that to you today, okay? I'm just Bob. Anything, anything good that happens today is going to be God doing it through me. Amen? We believe that. And that's why I want to park in the Word of God. And just kind of unfold and unpack these thoughts. Because if you were to ask me, Bob, can you go to one passage of Scripture, one primary passage of Scripture as your foundation for working with children, I would choose Psalm 78. So let's go ahead. I will open my mouth in a parable. Somebody tell me, what is a parable? So you got to raise your hand. Come on, this is orderly, right? This is is not a democracy. You know that, right? Children's ministry is not a democracy. It's a benevolent dictatorship, amen? So you you control the flow. You control the classroom. Yes, sir, right there. Parable is a a real-life story that teaches a spiritual lesson. Okay, that's good. Let's give him a round of applause for that. Five guys burger card. Now... According to the Gospels, what were the two purposes of a parable? What is one, one of the parables? Yeah, one purpose. One purpose. To, to get people's attention to think about God's, God's mindset. To think about God's mindset. In particular, who? Jesus. What's that? Jesus. Yeah, well, Jesus' disciples. The parables were for Jesus' disciples, followers of Jesus... For them to understand. But for those that did not follow Jesus, they were to remain what? 
mystery. Yeah. And you even see that reflected in the next word. What's the next word here? I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. Now, um, if, if Pastor Phelps had that on the top of the bulletin, come here, Big Bob, this Saturday from 9 to 12 as he utters dark sayings of old. <laughs> we may not have had this good turnout. <laughs> All right, like that does not, there, unless you're kind of dark and, 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 you know, a little macabre spirit, you're, you're not going to be attracted to that. Like, no, we do not want a guy uttering dark sayings of old in my church. We're going to stand for the truth. <laughs> so what is this translated here? It's actually riddle. It's a riddle. Now, you're supposed to get a riddle, but you don't get it until you get it. Am I right? Like, and usually, if my kid is giving me a riddle, I don't get it. And then she has to explain. And, and usually when she gives me like one little nugget or one little hint, there's an aha moment. You know what I'm talking about? And that's the same way with a parable. The parable is shrouded in a riddle. It's shrouded in mystery until there is an aha moment. And I would suggest to you that that aha moment for the Christian is faith. That really what he's describing here are teachings that cannot be fully accessed and appropriated by intellect alone. We all believe here that none of us got into the kingdom of God by intellect or logic alone. I told the boys and girls last week at camp, I said, you know, the gospel is not primarily a choice between heaven and hell. The gospel is a choice between Jesus Christ and my sin, my way, surrendering, giving up my rebellion. I had a Sunday school teacher when I was about uh, four years old take me into a room and she sat me down and she says, Bobby, do you know what's going to happen when you die? My parents were first generation Christians. And I had just, just recently been in church. And uh, I said, I didn't, I didn't know. She says, well, because there's only two places. And I really believe this was a well-meaning Sunday school teacher. And she described the beauties of heaven. She described how my mommy and daddy would be there. How Jesus would be there. The angels would be there singing. Do you want to go there? Or Bobby, do you want to go to hell where there's the devil and there's fire and you're going to be punished forever? You know what she presented to me? An academic, logical decision. The gospel is so much more than that. The gospel is you're a sinner. You need Jesus. Let me lift up high Jesus for you just so you can see how good, how precious he is. So... We see this, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. We're talking about things that cannot be fully appropriated without an aha moment. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. How did that happen? Because you're so smart? Because you read some answers in Genesis books? No. Supernatural, regenerative grace. Amen? That when you look out at the world today, you're seeing it through different colored lenses that have been given to you 
by God. It's a gift. You see things by faith. And so what is our heritage, folks, as Christians? We have a set of teachings that are actually foolishness to those without faith. Okay, because you, you would be called on the carpet that you're giving up all these pleasures. You're living your life for somebody you've never seen. Somebody that's totally invisible. You're ordering your whole universe, your whole family, your whole schedule around this being that you can only appropriate by faith. That's foolish if you don't have faith. But we have faith. And so what we have, folks, is we have a set of teachings that are designed to be grasped, designed to be understood, but they are unattainable outside of humble faith. And so what we do, just kind of work with me here, what I believe we do in the local church setting as children's ministers is we're putting boys and girls in the way for God to bless. We're we're putting them, I guess you could look at it, in the rain, in the blessing of that rain, in the hopes that God will open up the eyes, in the hopes that they will believe. We're going to go into that even more as we go through the verses. So let's keep going. Verse 3, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. So there has been a successful transmission of truth based on this verse here from generation to generation. So when I was a little kid, and I'm, I'm 50, so I grew up in the, in the kind of the burgeoning talk show uh, culture. And there was a guy named Donahue. Oh, yeah. Does anybody remember that dude? His hair? <laughs> All right. So a little kid. And one time... Donahue had this woman on who had created this little bear that quoted Bible verses, which I think that's awesome. You know, it's kind of cute. You know, you pull his cord, John 316, for God's love. I was like, yeah, I'll get a bear like that. And uh, there was a woman who raised her hand and uh, you could just see the sour look on her face. And she said, well, I don't think I have any right to impose my religious beliefs upon my children. And that actually kind of sounds noble if you don't think about it. (laughs) Um, But it's actually become the mantra in 2023. Like like you, you are no longer just an annoyance, folks. You're the enemy of the world. And we're feeling it more and more now. Because you actually stand, you have the audacity to stand there and tell them black and white, right and wrong, foundational truth. Whew. But what was that lady really saying by saying that comment? What she was really communicating to her son or daughter is that mommy is completely bankrupt. <laughs> When it comes to imparting anything to you about the most important matters of life. So I can't provide you any foundation. I just hope that you can go out there and find some truth that works for you. 
So we see the heritage of our Christianity that has its roots in Judaism, that ties all the way back thousands of years to Genesis, Exodus, the Torah, the prophets, the Nevi'im, the writings, the Ketuvim here, the Psalms in the Ketuvim. We see that this has been a successful transmission. This set of teachings, this set of doctrines, if you will, that cannot be appropriated by mere effort, intellect, academics, but it has to be unlocked with the key of faith. But that has not stopped the transmission of truth from generation to generation. People saw, they were compelled with the responsibility to provide that foundation so that by God's grace their eyes might be opened, that they might be turned to faith and hope in something substantive. And keep that in your mind, because that's what the, the Word is going to tell us, what the object really is here in just a moment. Verse 4. And I love this I love this verse. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. Okay. When I was joining the ministry in the mid-90s, Many of the Sunday school curriculums and children's ministry curriculums was mere moralizing. It went something like this. Hey kids, we're going to learn a story about Moses today. And Moses went and stood in front of Pharaoh. Moses was brave. What's the application? Kids, go and be brave like Moses. Okay. Based on Psalm 78.4, did that lesson did the application of that lesson hit the target? No. Because it's not about Moses. It's about Moses as God. Amen? Amen? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To whom be the glory forever. Amen? Amen? It's all about God. And so this is not new truth. And I mean, I think everybody here would assent to this, at least on some level, that... If your lesson, if, you're, if, the, if the content of your teaching does not get a child all the way back to God, it has failed at some point. And we're going to see why more. But I, I want to kind of keep going here for just a second. Um, so we're going to show to the generation to come the praises of who? The Lord. Well, now let's just, let's just park there for just a second. Let's look at that word, L-O-R-D. Was that what was originally written in the first Psalm scrolls? Whenever you see the word L-O-R-D in all caps, what are you saying in your brain, Christian? Yahweh. Yahweh. Amen. Yahweh. That is the name of God. And by the way, for a $10 Starbucks gift card, what is the first instance of the name of God in Scripture? What? Wait, no, you were a camp, bro. For a $5 Five Guys gift card. All right, stand up. Come on, Mr. Big Shot. When Moses asked God what he knew 
his title, yes. but he asked him what his name was. And what was his title? God. And what was that in Hebrew? Rhymes with Melohim. Melohim, <laughs> <laughs> <Elohim>, bro. <laughs> Let's get a round of applause. So let's just park on that just for our own edification for just at least a few moments. Did you ever think about how the name of God invites us into a relationship by begging a question? Imagine if on the way out of the building today, Pastor Phelps whispers in your ear, you're going to get a million dollars. And that's all he says. A statement like that begs some questions, does it not? What would you think? What are some questions that you would have when Pastor Phelps says you're going to get a million dollars? Yes. From who? From who? That's important. Because you're, you're thinking of IRS, right? And then in 2023, there's like 80,000 more agents ready to nail me. What else? Why? Why? What? What have I done? Why am I getting a million? There's one really pragmatic question. What? That's the one I would want to know. When? You know, like five minutes after you die when your insurance policy. <laughs> no, I don't want it then. It begs a question. Just think about this. Think about this for a moment, folks. That the very name of God, hard-coded into the name of God, is the invitation into relationship. He wants to be known. I am that I am. What are you? And he might say, well, stick around. Stay close. Seek me with your whole heart to find out. And one of the beauties, folks, that is just so undeniable is that this God has not hidden himself. If you miss him, you miss him on purpose. He's revealed himself clearly through creation, our own conscience. He's revealed himself through scripture primarily. That if you miss him, you miss him on purpose. And... He wants to be known. And so because of this, this should actually guide and direct the sum and substance of our lessons and what we teach. It should direct and point them to truth about this God. Have you also considered, I am that I am? The core of it is a verb. The core of it is a being verb. This past year, I began a hobby I began collecting Bible leafs. And the prize of my collection, and he saw it. You got to touch it, didn't you? Yeah. Is a 1549 Matthews Tyndale Bible leaf of Exodus 3. Let's just think about William Tyndale for a moment. He told a priest, he said, If God spares my life, I'm going to make a plowboy know more of the scriptures than you do. Because at that time, the Bibles were really, most, uh, almost all of them in Latin, and they were inaccessible. People didn't, couldn't read Latin, didn't know Latin, so they had to lean on the church. There's a pretty famous, uh, notable character in church history named John Tetzel. When I say that name, good guy or bad guy? Bad guy or really bad guy? Yeah, really bad guy. And he would go into a town, folks, and he was wearing these official robes. And just consider this. Just consider for a moment all the light that we are graced with, all, 
all the, the ability to go to Walmart and buy a $5 complete canon of scripture. And contrast that with John Tetzel who comes into a town, there's two or three hundred villagers, and he's standing in his holy robes, and he's got all the holy people from the church, and he's got very official looking posters and signage, and he warns people of the fires of hell, which is not a bad thing. We should warn people. Jesus warned people. But then his solution was to buy an indulgence. He would hold up an official looking piece of paper with an official stamp from the church at Rome and he would say something to the effect of tonight, tonight only, we're going to be selling these. Do not pass up. Do not pass up the opportunity to save your loved one and to save your soil. When a coin in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs, tonight and tonight only. So just just consider you're a villager, you don't read, you certainly can't read Latin, you never had a Bible, and you see this very holy, intimidating presence, and he's telling you this is the way to escape the flames of hell. What do you do? You buy an indulgence. But that's hellish. That's hellish. Anybody that loves Jesus and loves the gospel, you have to hate that kind of apostate teaching and preaching and greed and for a filthy game. And so William Tyndale, motivated by that kind of evangelism, said, I'm going to make God's word accessible in the common tongue. What grit he had. What grit he had to stand before that priest and tell him, I'm going to make a guy that plows no more of the scriptures than you do. And in 1526, he uh, he completed the Torah, and completed the New Testament. And uh, over the next 10 years, uh, his friend John Rogers helped complete the prophets and the other writings there. And uh, but then in 1536, William Tyndale was betrayed by a friend. And he was burned alive at the stake. And they strangled him before they tied him so there would be no strength left for him to fight. But there was a voice. There was a voice while he was burning in the flames. And do you know what he did? Well, he was Christ-like. Because what did Christ do on the cross? He prayed. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What did William Tyndale pray for a Chick-fil-A $10 gift card? Who remembers? (laughs) This is good church history. No, bro. (laughs) Hey, listen, you you need to be me in 20 years. You be here, okay? All right. You just be, you take my shoes, be Big Bob 2.0, all right? Who remembers? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Open the eyes of the king. Boom! Brother! Amen! Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Give that man a round of applause. Two years later, every parish in the land had a copy of the Tyndale Coverdale English Bible and... Your Bible, probably at least 70% of it, was based on those Bibles. So praise the Lord for the gift that we have and the light that we have. Now, long story to get to where I wanted to go. I have Exodus chapter 3, Leaf from William Tyndale. Second edition, 1549, almost 500 years old. He gets to the name of God. How does he translate it? 
Everyone take a stab. I am that I am. That's, trans, that's translation you have. Do you know what William Tyndale translated as? I will be what I will be. I'll tell you why. Because the core of God's name is that state of being verb that has the idea of ongoing, perpetual, no expiration date reality. So in the very name of God, there is the idea of eternality. It's hard-coded into the DNA. Isn't that awesome? Amen. And then, folks, the name of God, the Lord, the Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, that they might know Yahweh, it actually points ahead to Christ because do you know what the name Jesus literally means? And by the way, Christ is not his last name. It wasn't Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, Jesus Christ. We know Christ is a, for a $10, see Little Caesars gift card. Come on, children's workers. Yes, right here? The title of... Well, like a ribbon in half. Give you five dollars. Do you know what it means? Literally, literally, literally means? Yes? It's the Greek word for Messiah. That's right, Mashiach. Messiah. Give her a round of applause. Yep, yep, yep. Awesome. Which literally means the anointed one, all right? Or the one smeared with oil to designate something that is heaven on earth, something on earth that is from heaven, reserved for heaven, Mashiach. And Yeshua, by the way, you would not hear him being called Jesus in his day and age. You would have heard something like Yeshua, which is very pretty, isn't it? Yes. Yeshua. And it literally means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. And we know, according to Paul, that God has given Jesus a name that is above every name. And this is something, this is an interesting meditation. Um, And I've just been kind of living in the book of Exodus, so that's kind of why I'm parking here for just a second. That the name Yahweh is a state of being verb core, but the name Jesus is an action verb core with present and ongoing, no expiration date significance. And what does he do? He saves. So maybe we've just ended the hundred-year-old debate, hundreds-of-year-old debate, is God more holy or is God more loving? Maybe he's more saving. Because there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so you see there, just by parking in that one word, just for a moment, what it's all about. What are we supposed to show the next generation? We're supposed to show them God. And who is God? Who showed us God? Jesus showed us God. That is, we are pointing to Christ as the object of saving and sanctifying faith. All right. Once upon a time, there was a movie that came out in the late 90s called The Prince of Egypt. Anybody see that one? Okay, they got about half of it right. I had my kid watch it, and I had her take a notebook, and I said, I'm going to give you 50 cents for every biblical thing they got wrong, you know. That's, that's good children's ministry, amen? You know, you know money. <laughs> and, and heresy. <laughs> Identifying heresy, all right? We don't want them to be false teachers. So uh, there's a lot wrong with it. But there was a song that was very famous there for a while. It came out when I was in seminary, Pastor. 
And some of the seminary guys actually got together and watched it one night. Um, not at the movies, brother. <laughs> we rented it. <laughs> and uh, there's a song that goes like this. There can be miracles if you believe. You ever heard that before? All right. Don't sing it in church. <laughs> a, few, a few weeks later, there was a billboard in Kansas City. Beautiful sunset billboard, and it said that on the top, there can be miracles if you believe. And we live in a day and age where the object of faith has actually become faith. And as long as you believe something, and you're sincere about something, you're okay. And this is kind of the soupy, syrupy philosophical mess that we live in. It's like, your truth. Have you heard that expression? you got to find your truth. Yeah. Well, then, then, then you can't call it truth anymore. Because truth, by logic, is objectively yay or nay, whether you believe it or not. It just stands. It stands as true. You need to find that truth. And so, we believe the object of saving and sanctifying faith is the God of this book. Amen. And so the best, the very best thing that we could do is to lift up the God of this book before the eyes of boys and girls so that they might set their faith and hope in Him. And lo and behold, look, it's right there in the passage. Verse 6, verse 5. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them even the children who should be born, who should rise and declare them to their children. So you see the generational process here, that command. This is what God wants. He wants this set of teachings, this set of doctrines that cannot be fully understood without faith to be taught, putting boys and girls in the way for God to bless. Why? Verse 7, that they might set their hope in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And then the rest of the chapter goes into this kind of cyclical history lesson about how merciful God has been. And here's a question, man. In fact, I'm going to give two Starbucks gift cards. $20, folks. Can you imagine how popular you will be after this? Somebody think of a New Testament link to this Old Testament Psalm, where he goes and recounts a history lesson, a history of God's mercy and Israel's rebellion. God's mercy, Israel's rebellion. Somebody preached a sermon. Yes, ma'am. Give her a round of applause. Amen. And it may have very well been. Steve, this, this, this psalm may have been on Stephen's mind as he's standing before the Sanhedrin in his final moments, preaching his final message, recounting God's mercies. And we should do that. We should do that corporately. We should do that. We should, we should keep before the eyes of the children God's blessings to us as a church body. We should keep before the eyes of the children God's blessings to us individually. One of the greatest ways that you can connect, and by the way, one of, I believe a love language when working with kids is stories. They want to know you. 
They don't want to know about you. They don't want to know that you're one of them. That you're human. That you connect on their level. And you, you help them understand how good God has been to you. I'll illustrate this point of the object of faith as supreme by my own testimony, my own story. When I went to camp when I was nine years old, there's a little different flavor of camp than the wilds or what we have around here. And there was a guy, he was a dynamic speaker. And he said, some of you kids out there, you don't know if you're even a Christian. And in my heart, that's what I was thinking. He says, let me tell you what you do. On your way back to the cabin tonight, look up at the stars. And if you really are a Christian, Jesus is going to make a star twinkle for you. Now, there's a good theological word for that teaching baloney. <laughs> yeah, heresy. Yeah, doesn't say. But here I am, nine year old kid, 10 year old kid. The object of my faith suddenly shifts from anywhere near Christ to a star. And I'm walking back, and I got one, two, I got three twinkles, folks. I'm thrice saved. And that was the salve on my conscience for a good long time. It's like, no, man, I know I'm a Christian because I got star twinkles. That, that's awful. And folks, we, we really stand in a place where we're, we're in a sense like mirrors and we're trying to aim the gaze of that child off of things that don't save. Because the heart wants to cling to anything except Christ. The heart wants to cling to good works. The heart wants to cling to a signature in a Bible. The heart wants to cling to perfect church attendance. And the heart wants to cling to, well, my aunt told me I'm a Christian. And we need to be like that mirror that says, oh, it's Jesus and only Jesus. It's only Jesus. Um, so I grew up in church culture, and I grew up as an unbeliever. I had all the answers. I knew, I knew how to impress you. And, uh, but I was struggling. I didn't have peace and joy because I wasn't a Christian. And that's what you get. When you get Jesus, you get inexpressible joy. Amen? Amen. In whom not having seen, we love. And joy with joy inexpressible, that old salty fisherman said. Man, that's what we get. I didn't have that. But I knew... I knew some of my friends did, and I went to a Christian school, and I went to a Christian college, and I started playing basketball at this Christian college, and I became president of a society at a Christian college, and then one summer I decided I'm going to be a camp counselor, and all these things that I was doing, folks, I was doing these things in order to salve my guilty conscience and have some kind of foundation to step on. And think, okay, I must be saved because I did that. And God let me do that. And I, I look at what I'm doing. And then God was gracious to me. And he sent an accident my way. I was home doing an internship at a Baptist church. I was 21 years old. And uh, I was playing basketball with 300 teenagers. There was this huge youth activity. And I was the big time college student. When I played basketball at this huge D1 school. 
It's called Northland Baptist Bible College. Have you ever heard of it? I had a full ride scholarship. No, I'm just kidding. All right, pretty pretty rinky dink. But you know, we did play some NAIA teams and that kind of stuff. But I could dunk at that time, and I could do some dandies. And I was doing all these dunks, and all of a sudden, one of these kids, John, he starts trying to play defense on me. And they was a seventh grade kid, and I went around him, and I went up, and I did a reverse slam dunk, and then I. I, I, I heard a snap when I landed. But that kid was on the ground, and I thought maybe I had hurt him. I was very worried as the intern. You're not supposed to injure the children. And, but I tried to take a step with my left leg, and I suddenly realized what it was. What was wrong? I had snapped my tib-fib right in half. And about four inches up from my ankle, it was like a brand-new joint. And I started screaming for help. 300 people in this huge gymnatorium and nobody believed me in fact the youth pastor who i served under he came over and he just said would you you're embarrassing me please stop nobody believed me i was wearing pants you couldn't see you know it was a baptist event so no sure. <laughs> and, uh, and so i was so upset nobody believed me i actually just i sat there and i just shook my leg back and forth and my foot went flip flop flip flop flip. so they called the ambulance and i go to the doctor and the first thing, I have this revelation at the hospital that I do not fit on hospital beds. So, like, 10 inches of me is hanging off the end of the hospital bed. And my leg that is broken is in this loose sling hanging off the hospital bed. And my parents come. And my mom, you know, she's in a panic, just wondering deep questions of life, like, can he ever get married? You know, stuff like that. <laughs> my dad, who's a large man, not really minding where he's at and frustrated because he's thinking of dollars and cents at this time. Like this kid is costing him money and he is not minding where he is at in relationship to the foot that is hanging off the end of the hospital bed. And he hooked my foot upon his person and he took a step with it. And it was unpleasant. Some of you are troubled right now. I won't go into any further details. But you're troubled more than if I would to tell a story like, guys, once upon a time, I fell down on my knee, and I got a boo-boo. It was about like that. And there was a little bit of blood. Like, that surface, who cares? Who cares? Grow up, big boy. When you talk bones, you're actually talking about something foundational. And, and all of us, all of us feel it. All of us understand that. Like, I need my bones. Broken bones do not, do not, do, I cannot function with non-working bones. They're my foundation. What's our foundation spiritually? The object of your faith. What you are trusting in for forgiveness of sins and hope of eternal life. What is that aimed at? Like a laser beam. How are we directing it? How are we directing the gaze of other people to look up at this risen Christ and only this Christ? You know, it was a big deal because my foundation was messed up. I had to get a full leg cast, folks, from the top of my hip to the tip of my toe. I had to wear that for two months. And then... They go in and they saw it off. And when they saw it off, you realize if you don't use something, you lose it. 
There's no muscle. I could take my thumb and finger and still have space to, to grab around my thigh. And then they took a half leg cast and I had to wear that for two months. So it was so much different than him giving me like a bottle of some aspirin saying, you know, take some of these, you should be fine in a couple of days. Because something foundational got messed up. So it's almost like the sun in our universe. If the sun goes off kilter, one degree, left or right, up or down, we freeze or fry. And so what is the sun in the center of your spiritual universe? It's the object of your faith. What are you trusting in? Because if the foundation is off, if the foundation is messed up, it's a really big deal. It was about a year and a half before I was back on the basketball court. And even at that point, it was like 70-80% of what I had formerly been. Why? Because something foundational got messed up. What are we doing in children's ministry? We, by God's grace, we're dealing with foundations. We're dealing with foundations. That's what, that is, in a sense, as we go in and minister, we're thinking, by God's grace, we're putting Christ as the sun in the spiritual center of this children's of this child's heart and mind. We're giving them something substantive, not like the mom who had nothing to offer, frowned at the Bible quoting bear. But we have such a heritage, we have such a rich heritage. The most precious thing in the world to me, by God's grace, not because I'm Captain Spiritual, but just because God's been gracious to me, is Jesus. You can take everything from me. You can take my money, my car, my house, my family, and I love them with all my heart. There's one thing you're never going to take, and that's Jesus. It's so precious to me that He would reach down and save a proud sinner like me and open up my eyes and grant me faith so that I could sink my teeth into this set of teachings, into this set of truth and doctrine and just appropriate it. One story and I'm done. And we'll, we'll look at session two. Um, first, one of the first years that I was a camp counselor, uh, I had this little boy named Eric. And I still try to keep in touch with Eric. But he was this kid that would just keep coming every day, two or three times a day. I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm not sure my sins are forgiven. And uh, finally got to Friday night. I talked to him probably a dozen times. I got to Friday night, and I said, Eric, I, I don't know what more to say to you, but here's what we're going to do. We're just going to sit here, and uh, I'm going to sit across from you, and I'm going to read you a Bible verse, and I'm going to say a quick prayer, and let's just see if God shows up. Let's just see if God shows up. And folks, I just want to kind of step very gingerly here. I think so often we have been guilty of and crippled by assembly line Christianity. You know, two plus two equals four. Are you whosoever? Okay. And we just haven't given God the, the glory and the space to be God. God won't be put in any box. Amen. And there I am. I'm with Eric. And I read a Bible verse, say a little prayer, look at his face, just confused. And I did that for about 20 minutes. And I read a Bible verse. Bible verses you all know. Bible verses he's heard probably a hundred times. And I prayed. And I looked at Eric's face as I 
open up my eyes, and now I see his jaws. Like, he's like, and I'm looking at his face, and I'm like, this might be good. This might be good. And I said, Eric, what's going on, man? And he looks at me, and in the most earnest eyes and the most earnest words, he goes, oh, you mean God loves me? Like, duh. <laughs> duh. And I think this gets back to what the psalmist is saying. These dark sayings of old, these parables, you're not going to get it in there by force or sheer effort or grit. You put kids in the way for God to have those Holy Spirit aha activation moments. Amen? To where Eric now has his eyes open and he goes all in and his hope now, what's it in? Verse 7, that they might set their hope in God. There's the object of faith. And hoping in God changes everything. Because he contrasts those that hope in God with those that forgot God and did not keep his commandments. So hoping in God produces love for God. And how do we love God? Well, we keep his commandments. It's not a burden. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage of scripture. And I pray that it would be a anchor point and a strong foundation of why we do children's ministries, that we could look into this, consider it well, that it would motivate our preparations as we think about what direction the scriptures are heading and that it would always lead to Christ and the necessity to come to him, believe in him. And I pray this in Jesus name and all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Get, get some soda, there's coffee. We'll come back and we'll say at 15. So, 15 after. Sounds good. <laughs>